The Guardian. Hello and welcome to this bonus edition of The Guardian Books podcast. I'm Claire Armistead. Today we present for you Lampedusa, an audio drama by award-winning playwright Anders Lustgarten. You'll no doubt have heard of the ongoing humanitarian crisis in the Mediterranean, where thousands of migrants are making the treacherous voyage from North Africa to seek asylum in Europe, many dying before they reach the shore. This compelling drama takes place, in part, in these waters, and takes migration as its theme. It was created in association with Guardian membership and a special live event discussing one of the great issues of our time. As you might expect, it does contain strong language and graphic imagery from the very start. Lampedusa by Anders Lustgarten This is where the world began. This was Caesar's highway. Hannibal's road to glory. These were the trading routes of the Phoenicians, the Carthaginians, the Ottomans and the Byzantine. If you look carefully, my grandfather used to say, you can still make out the wakes of their ships. Our favourite food is botaga, salted roe. Tastes like being slapped in the face by a wave you didn't see coming. We all come from the sea, and back to the sea we will go. The Mediterranean gave birth to the world. On a clear day, I am Caesar. The prow of the boat cuts the horizon in two. Sunlight shatters off the waves. Dolphins, great flocks of seabirds. The ocean sucks and pulses like a giant lung breathing life into the world, even as the wind pushes the air from my lungs, makes it hard to breathe. I forget this is a job. I forget why I'm here, except to be alive. And then I see, and I remember why. The lung has little black spots floating on its surface, distant, hardly visible in the light. The boat draws closer, Salvatore cuts the engine and we drift alongside. The bodies of the drowned are more varied than you'd think. Some are warped, rotted, bloated to three times their natural size, twisted into fantastical and disgusting shapes, like the curse in the story my grandmother used to tell me, dead of winter, chills down your spine. Others are calm, no sign of struggle, as if they're dozing in the sun on a lazy summer afternoon, and a tap on the arm will bring them gently awake. Those are the hardest, because they're the most human. Overwhelmingly young, the dead. Twenties, thirty at most. Kids, a lot of them. Well, you have to be to make the journey, I suppose. Feels very strange to see so many young people dead. Unnatural. Everybody tries at one time or another to wake the ones who still look human. A pinch, splash of water on the face. Come on, get up. The state of a drowned corpse depends on several factors. 
how long it's been in the water, temperature, tides. If the tides bring colder water up from the depths, a body can be preserved more or less intact for a surprisingly long time. That has two consequences. One is that although the colder water preserves the bodies, it also alters the makeup of human flesh. Physically, chemically, whatever, I don't know exactly, but they fall apart if they've been in the drink a while. Slide apart and fall to pieces in your hands. The sensation is like... Like oiled, lumpy rubbish bags sliding through your fingers. The other is that colder water brings more fish. The drowned lie face down, heads lolling in the water, and fish go for the easiest parts to reach. Eyelids, pieces of the face, fingertips, anything not protected by clothing, basically. The bulging eyes of the dead, that's how you know they've gone. The shock, the sheer horror wears off eventually, but the sense of dread as we pull up, of not knowing what we're going to find, that never goes away. There's all kinds of reactions. There's the ones who act like it's an out. Can you come back later, love? I'm watching telly. A television means you have assets and therefore means of repayment. Am I correct in that, sir? They look at you different then. There's them who pretend not to understand English, so we have to use sign language. There's the ones who do a runner. I had a bloke jump out at window on me the other day. Not sure he remembered he were on third floor. Broke his ankle in two places. When I caught up with him, hobbling across the car park, he goes, Oh, there you are, love left me checkbook in the car. And then there's the creative ones. Generally, I find the madder the excuses, the more likely they are to be true. Today, I add, I can't deal with this now, me python's just eaten me dog. Went in after the bloke, and fuck me if there isn't a massive snake lying across the carpet in a right food coma, and banging his middle is a duck-shaped bulge so tight he can actually make out the curls of the poor bugger's fur. That's a miniature schnauzer, isn't it? I said to him. Lovely dogs, full of energy. It went mad. All kinds of reactions. But the overriding one is... People do not take it seriously, as if it's not really happening. Not here, to them, now. People are strange when you're a stranger. It's a myth that we send the heavies round at the drop of an act. There's a range of options available to us. First of all, we put what's called a CPA, a Continuous Payment Authority, on the bank account. That gives us the right to access income streams ahead of other claimants, rent and such. After that, it's calls to the house, to the employer, should there be one, letters. When none of that works, a more direct approach is required and that is where I come in. The company prefers to send a woman. They think it leads to less violence. Two flaws with that theory. One is that men do not like to be embarrassed by a woman and they particularly don't like being asked for money. It hurts their pride. So there are... incidents. The other is that half our customers are women. And the dirty little secret of women is women fucking hate each other. I've never been afraid collecting off a man, but I dread dealing with a woman. Nails down your cheek. Spitting. 
the nastiest, most malicious abuse about me race, me face, me body. They judge me doing this job the way they'd never judge a man. Like I've violated some code of solidarity they never let me in on in first place. Girls who did slitty eyes at me in science class, who've put on four stone since, asking how I can live with myself. I tell him, this is what working class jobs used to be. Flexible, paid overtime. We're a growth industry, us and prisons. Not my fault you ain't kept up with modernity. The ones that proper piss me off are them who make out they're fighting the man by spunking someone else's money on a massive flat screen TV. There's one sack of lard, clearly spent the entire loan on KFC because you were visible from space. She kept going on about how I were a traitor to the working class. Normally I try to stay, what's the word? Dispassionate, keep a professional distance. But this one deserved a little something. So as we were serving the papers, I leant in and said, What do you know about working class? You've never had either in your life. That shut her up. The bottom line is, if you can't afford to pay a loan back, don't take it out. Don't stand there quoting me figures. I only took out this much and you lot want three times as much back. Yes, thank you, Stephen Hawking. I can do the maths as well. The interest rate is down there in black and white. Learn some discipline. If you ain't got the money, do without. I have. I do. My father was a fisherman. And his father before him and before and before. I always thought, always knew I'd make my living at sea. But the fish are gone. The med is dead. And my job is to fish out a very different harvest. Three years without work. Three years of pleading and queuing and niggly little bribes to a man who says he can help. And you sit and you wait, but nothing happens. And you go back to him. And he looks at you and shrugs and laughs a wheezy, smoky laugh, but he doesn't give you your bribe back. So you start again. Your aim's sinking slow like a pin-old boat, turned down for stuff you turned your nose up at before, borrowing money from my dad, Kiara's mum, who she don't get along with at the best of times. And finally, this. The job no one else will take. I fucking wish they'd stop coming. Not in the way Salvatore does. Salvo's problem is he's an idealist. He joined to rescue people, to help. And those people are always the most selfish because it's to help on their terms. And rescuing people isn't the key part to the job. The key to the job is the dead. And Salvo began very quickly to hate these dead people because they kept coming and coming and wouldn't stop. He began to take it personally, like they were dying just to upset him, to make him feel like a failure. And now he calls them the niggers and is going to vote Berlusconi in the next election. <laughs> Ridiculous. For one thing, Berlusconi's banned from the next election. Read the papers, you twat. And for another, because they aren't only black. 
Syrians are the latest thing. Palestinians last summer when Gaza got bombed, Egyptians and Libyans the past couple of years, we read the papers, see a disaster, a crackdown, a famine, and we say, they'll be here next. Makes me laugh when people call them economic migrants. It's like an earthquake. You feel the tremors from far away and you know the tidal wave is coming. But my beef is Wyos. This is a small island. The refugee centre swamped, 1,200 in a place built for two or three. People sprawled on blankets in the streets, kids playing in the dust behind barbed wire. It's embarrassing. Looks like Guantanamo. We're a hospitable people, but where else can we put them? And then a chicken goes missing or some washing off the line and they're shouting and we're the ones who look ignorant, small-minded, but where is everybody else? Why are we? A small, dusty island nobody's ever heard of left to deal with all this alone. And do the migrants not understand Europe is fucked and that Italy is double-fucked and that the south of Italy is triple-fucked? My younger brother, much smarter than me, degree in biochemistry, he had to go to London to find work as a chef. He says the sous chef is a biologist from Spain and the kitchen porter is a geneticist from Greece and in their free time between courses they work on a cure for cancer. That's a joke. They don't get any free time. In Italy there's no hope. Everything's corrupt. The middle-aged cling grimly to their jobs and suffocate the rest of us. Nobody has any idea how to fix it. Pessimism is our national sport. You can see it in our football. And these people, the survivors, the lucky ones, they come on land with these shining, gleaming eyes and I resent them for it. I'll be honest, I do. I resent them for their hope. Here's some I found out the other day. Nine out of the ten poorest regions in Northern Europe, in comparative terms, are in Great Britain. Would you like to know where they are? West Wales, Cornwall, Tees Valley, Lincolnshire, the Independent Republic of South Yorkshire, Shropshire, Staffordshire, Lancashire, Northern Ireland. That's the top eight. Ninth is some wankstain in Belgium. Tenth is East Yorkshire. We also have one entry in the list of the ten richest areas. It's the top entry, as it happens. Can you guess where it is? I bet you'll never guess. Inner London. Put all that in my politics essay. It's why I do my job, to pay for my degree. Got the grade today. C+. Plus. Two on the nose. A lack of balance. These are government figures. Nobody else had them figures in their work. I checked. The prospectus for this university claims to encourage original thinking. Well, do you want the truth or don't you? I was spat at on the bus this morning. A couple of public schoolboys, I'd say. I'd not heard chinky cunt and fucking migrant in that accent till recently... But lately, I get it quite a bit. Middle-class people think racism is free speech now. Tip of the iceberg, Farage. Tip of the greasy, gin-soaked iceberg of country. The matchless bitterness of the affluent. Something about the Chinese and all. 
we're the last ones it's okay to hate. The last you can take the piss out of to us faces, cos we'll do nout back. And all we're good for is DVD Sarahs and the takeaway honours and the whores. You can say stuff to the Chinese you wouldn't even say to Muslims. And I'm not even a proper one. Don't fit in anywhere, me. Mixed and mouthy and poor. I can't stand this country now. The hatred. The hatred and the bitterness and the rage. The misplaced, thick, ignorant rage. Blaming fucking migrants for every single thing we don't like about ourselves. Four o'clock this afternoon, soaked to the skin, I'd been up and down more piss-stained staircases than a Channel 4 Benefits documentary, and I banged on another door, and yet another snide little prick yawned in my face, kicked aside an EI pile of takeaway cartons, and swore at me when I asked him to pay, like I was the one in the wrong. And he did not have a Syrian, or a Romanian, or a Ugandan accent, let me tell you that. Migrants don't hide their taxes in the Cayman Islands. Migrants don't privatise the NHS. And migrants don't scrape together their life savings, leave their loved ones behind, bribe and fight and struggle their way onto the undercarriage of a train or into a tiny hidden compartment of a lorry with 40 other people, watch their mates die or get raped, all for the express purpose of blagging £67.46 a week off Kirklees District Council. People just don't act like that. And if you need to believe they do, what does that say about you? It don't matter what anybody says. How many times me bloody mother tells me I'm too thick to pass. I am going to murder these exams. I'm going to Oscar them, as I like to call it. As in Pistorius. And if the results are good enough, I can go anywhere. Australia. America, China even. Doing well they are. That'd be fucking ironic. Anywhere but here. Slam the door on this washed up country. Turn me back. Be free. I don't know what free is, where I'll find it, but that is where I am going and nobody will stop me. Dawn. Beautiful morning. Not a whisper on the water. The rocks... Dusted with peach and apricot, the breeze like a sigh of happiness. And the boat won't start. Not a soul around to help. Salvo and I fiddle with the engine for half an hour, no joy. We're on the point of chucking it in when one of the mounds of rags piled up on the pier starts to stir and yawn. Stocky. Wine-dark skin. Nigerian, my guess. I've got decent at telling the difference between Eritrean, Somali, Senegalese. I take a bit of pride in it as it goes. We have bets on who's what. I've won a few drinks off it. What? This is all new to us. He watches us, struggling and cursing for a while, this lad with a look of amusement on his face. Doesn't do anything to help. In the end, Salvo storms off, lobs a few choice words in the fella's direction. Short pause. He gets up. I'm thinking he's going to wake his mates to come and watch. 
Then he fixes the boat. Five minutes it took him. Easy for me, he says, grinning. Modibo, from Mali, a mechanic. Not much use for a boat mechanic in the Sahara, I tell him. Yes, this is why Europe needs me. Boats, cars, planes, all I can do, he says. Massive smile all over his face. You want drink coffee? You want me to buy you a coffee? No, I buy for you. Big laugh this time. I'm off to work, mate. He offers to get in the boat with me in case it packs up again. No thanks, chirpy fucker. You've got to try to keep them at arm's length. If you let them get close, you never know what they might ask for. On the boat, the survivors talk to me, plead their cases like I can do anything for them. It's not part of my job to have to listen to their stories. There's too many of them. And it makes you think about the randomness of I get to walk these streets and he don't. You start to think about things like that. The ground becomes ocean under your feet. And what if he does get in? And we break down and he fixes it again and the boss is here that he can do stuff I can't do for half the rate. You have to think about things like that now. Here, Europe, 2015, you have to watch your back from every angle. So, I thank the fella, shake his hand, bell salvo and away we go. He stands there, waving as we head off like a big gormless lump. I think that's the end of it, except the mad bastard clearly hasn't got the memo that we aren't going to be mates because I keep running into him and he keeps being nice to me. His big, guileless face, open smile. I mean, what's he got to be so happy about, eh? Keeps on offering to buy me an espresso, like he's made of money. Be rude to say no. Salvo sees us in the cafe. Gives me a look, mutters something about soft touch. He's paying, you gobshite. Speak shit Italian, Medibo. I say, why come somewhere you don't understand the language? He says, I didn't come here, I come to Europe. The language of Europe is English. And then he says something to me in English which I didn't understand. I tell him, vaffanculo. <laughs> he understands that, all right. You see, your Italian's getting better already. He plays me something as well, a song called Lampedusa. It's meant to be about all the people who've come here seeking a better life, the drowning and the terror, the hope and the futures. Well, I don't know if I can hear all that in there personally, but it's beautiful. Listen. village was burned down twice. Once by the military, because they said it was a stronghold of Islamic fundamentalists, and once by Islamic fundamentalists, because they said it was a stronghold of the military. Second time, they gave them an hour to get out. Said they'd kill anyone left behind. So he stashed his family and headed here to earn the money to start afresh. Well, 
This is his story. God knows how much of it is true. He could be making it all up. Marley. Exotic. You know Atos? Course you do. They do them work capability assessments, where they go to morgues, plane crashes, outbreaks of bubonic plague, and tell people they'll be fine, it's just a head cold. And by the way, their benefits have been stopped. My mum got the dreaded Atos call today. Mum's been called a lot of things over the years. She's gone from retarded, to slur, to disabled, to differently abled. Which makes it sound like progress. Funny though, she's not treat any better. Kicked from pillar to post her whole life. She's not any of them things as it happens. She just don't like people. She particularly don't like foreigners, which she must have made an exception for at some time, though she's never explained why. Barely who. One of the walls of her heart is thicker than it should be. Causes high blood pressure, hypertension, dizzy spells, collapses. She's a proper case, not like most of these I deal with. There's no way she can work. 58 years old... Sick, thick, thinks a CV is an old French car. Not getting a corner office, is she? The thing about Atos is they're easy to play. They work on a target matrix, very much like us. This is the plus side of working for a payday loan company. It gives you a real insight into British society. And so you just play the matrix. Play the spastic, basically. I know it sounds harsh, but... All you need to do, Mum, is be aware of everything. All the innocent little things you do in everyday life, when you go in that office, they are watching like a hawk and they will hold them against you. Do you get up unaided? Could you walk? Then you're not physically impaired. Did you respond straight away when they called your name? Did you fill out the form by yourself? You've not got mental problems. They have hidden cameras in their offices so they can analyse all this at their leisure. Well-dressed is bad. Awareness of social norms. Pets are bad. Ability to care for others. Hobbies are bad. Ability to function socially. And all these abilities mean only one thing. You can work. They take all the little things people do to make a good impression... The things we do to prove that we are human beings and they use them to fuck you. That's the cruelty. The breathtaking cruelty of it. To pass an Atos assessment, you have to be, or play, a locked-in idiot with no social skills, no friends, nobody that's ever loved them in the history of the world. Ian Duncan Smith, basically. Mum's flapping, she's panicking, says she can't catch her breath. How will she live without her money? Stop flapping, I say. It's them as don't know how the system works that need to worry. Some odd came out of it as it happens. I was at a client's flat. She'd been tricky to get hold of. Wriggles out of stuff, but finally I got hold of her and Mum kept ringing. It were right embarrassing, actually. Now, most of the kind I deal with would turn that to their advantage, but... You're right. 
she says. Fine, thanks. Now, let's get back to the matter in hand. Would you like a cup of tea? Don't like to be rude unless it's earned. She sits me down at her kitchen table and we talk. It's the expression on her face. Carolina, her name is. Portuguese lass, on her own with a little kid. Jaden. I don't like kids. Think it's all about them, don't they? We talk about this and that, but at the back of my mind I'm thinking, what's your game? You trying to butter us up so I'll let you off your money? Because I can't do that. But that face of hers. Guileless would be the word. She just seemed to like us. In the end, she invited me over for tea tomorrow night. She's making some Portuguese speciality with salt cod in it. Sounds absolutely disgusting, to be honest, but... I shouldn't really go. It's against policy and all that. But I think she could do with company. Dead kids weigh fucking nothing. That's what I've learned today. You need a couple of men to haul an adult corpse out of the water, but it only takes one arm to haul in a dead kid. Of course, normally they've been in a while, got waterlogged. But this lot were barely in half an hour. We hardly needed the boat. Could have waded out there. This morning, a migrant boat, unusually overloaded even by the standards of migrant boats, overturned almost within sight of Rabbit Beach. So far, we're looking at north of 350 dead. Salvo and I personally recovered 74 corpses today. Mainly children. Children and women. They run women-only boats now because they weigh less and you can get more in. And then, in the middle of the ocean, the smugglers can stop the boat, turn around and say, There's one more payment. It's bad enough when they're age 25. But when they're five... Last year, the users of TripAdvisor voted Rabbit Beach the most beautiful beach in the world. It's called Rabbit Beach because we used to raise rabbits on it before the tourists came. We're not a poetic people. Between tourism and the immigrant game, supplying the refugee centre or working for the NGOs, a lot of people on this island are making a lot of money all of a sudden. God forbid anything stop the tourist industry. The Russians are probably back there already, pleased to get it all to themselves, apart from the odd corpse, our lot, rushing to serve them cold drinks. They don't give a flying fuck about anyone, do they, the Russians? This is my holiday. I earned it. Ugly bastards, too. When they sunbathe, the men look like they're drowned, but fatter. The fucking numbers. We pulled out four times as many dead last year as the year before. Four times. More than 3,000 corpses, and those are just the ones we found. But nothing changes. People keep pouring in. They run more boats now than ever before. Boats from Turkey and Lebanon and Libya and Egypt. Boats with no crews that are set on a course to crash into Europe. Rescue guaranteed, because nobody wants a shipwreck off their coastline. So the price of the ticket goes up. Ingenious fuckers, the smugglers. On the radio this morning, they said this is the biggest global mass migration since the Second World War. And all we do 
is let them drown. I ask Sal, what are we going to do? Drink, he says, and marches off, his big, broad back to me, shoulders hunched up around his ears. Madibo is standing on the pier, staring at the rows of bodies, his face haunted. I can only guess what or who he's thinking of. I realise I've never seen him without a smile before. And he turns to me and says very quietly that it's deliberate that our glorious leaders want the migrants to drown as a deterrent, a warning to others. They want them to see the TV footage of the bloated bodies and the rotted faces of those who trod the watery way of death before them, so they'll hesitate before they set foot in one of those rickety little death traps. And he says they do see, but they get in anyway. They know what the dangers are, but they keep coming and coming because, in his words... If those men in their offices knew what we were coming from, they'd know we will never, ever stop. It's not fair. That's all I can say. For them to be in sight of land, within touching distance of safety, and for the boat to go down feels so fucking unfair. Maybe it's no worse than drowning in the middle of a blue desert and nobody knows you're gone. Maybe there's no difference at the end of the day, I don't know. All I can tell you is how I feel. Bacalao, it's called. The Portuguese salt cod thing. You have to soak it for 24 hours before you make it, which I were right touched by, that she'd gone to all that effort. Butter, potatoes, onions, garlic, peppers, parsley. And then on top of that, chopped olives and hard-boiled eggs. She sticks a plateful in front of me and smiles. And I lift a forkful to my mouth. And you know what I'm thinking? I'm from fucking Leeds, for fuck's sake. This is not for me. And it were delicious. It were absolutely delicious. Two helpings and a bottle and a half of red later and we're gassing. Men, kids, jobs, family, the lot. She's not got a remarkable story, but it's not the remarkable stories that stick with you, is it? Came over here to study English, met a fella, decided to stay, had Jaden, the fella fucked off. Why do men do that? It's like they live in a haze. The thing about Carolina is she's not got an ounce of self-pity. She's right in the middle of telling me about her paediatric studies. I can't spell the word and she's studying it in foreign language, so fair play. And how the fees have gone way up and childcare is so fucking expensive in this country. I love the way she says fucking with that little growl. It's quite sexy, actually. And so she's got behind with the rent. And she's had to go to this arsehole company for money. And we've both totally forgotten that's why I'm here. And then she laughs. And I laugh. And she pours another glass of wine. And so, I tell her how to cancel the CPA we put on her account. Send a letter to a bank by registered post, five working days before payment is due, and we can't touch her. People are remarkably ignorant of their rights in this country, 
the ones they still have. Well, least you can do when someone makes you dinner, isn't it? The touching thing is, she's so bloody grateful. It's only a few months breathing space, but it seems to mean the world to her. Her fridge died last week. Jaden needs new shoes. I don't make friends easily. I'm not a giver, a confider. I cling on to what I am, my sense of self like grim death, white bloody knuckles, because I have had to fight so bloody hard for every last inch of it. But tonight, I feel so much shift inside me. And then the phone rings. I've not been able to sleep much. A lot of nightmares. The rotten fingers of the drowned clutching at my neck. Grey faces of the long dead staring up from the seabed. People I'd forgotten I'd fished out sitting on the end of my bed glaring at me. Seawater pooling on the sheets. They never speak, but the briny, carrion stink of them. Staring at me as if somehow I've betrayed them. I swear I've woken up more than once because of the smell. Open all the windows, turn the lights on. Nothing there, obviously. Chiara understands, but she doesn't understand, you know? We have a deal. Don't bring your work home with you. Which is fair enough. And after a couple of nights, she's starting to get pissed off. I've tried the sofa, but the noise... Well, I don't believe I make any noise, but the kids come in frightened and Daddy's fine. He's fine. Go back to bed. Difficult to speak to anyone. Salvo would use it to get at me, hide his own fears and worries. We're fishermen, and fishermen die. You're not supposed to make a big deal of death. You mourn and you get back to life while you've still got it. But there's never been a time when 350 have died all at once, in sight of shore, with no one left to mourn for them. Which is why the only one who understands is Modibo. He doesn't ask me about it, he just listens. He understands. Not the words sometimes, but the gist. They've all seen it. Been through it. No people who've not survived. They know what's really happening. He got temporary leave to remain. I guess his story checks out, though. God knows how they make these decisions anyway. The light of joy on his face when he found out. Pure unadulterated joy, jumping and hugging with his mates and the happiness on their faces too, when half of them won't get what he's got and they'll get sent back anyway, and they all know that, but but they were really, genuinely happy for him. Fucking lifts your heart. It's been bloody good for me to be around him, actually. He's been a real mate. So, I've decided to be a good mate back. I try not to go. I tell Carolina, it's just me mum, this is what she's like. Attention-seeking. It won't be serious, bit of asthma. But she insists. It's your mother, of course I'll drive you. I hate going over there. The state of the place. The grime between the bathroom tiles. 
the ring of encrusted shit around the toilet. The memories of boredom and terror. In the whole flat, there's not a single book. How is that even possible? Not a book, not a picture, not a piece of culture in the whole house. Never has been. Nothing to connect her to the rest of the human race. No food in the fridge. And it'd be fine if Mum were happy with that. But she hates it. All she ever does is moan. It scares the shit out of me. It fucking terrifies me that I could end up like that. Like a dried fly the spider forgot to eat. It's what keeps me going. Keeps me pressing. There's no reason for me to feel guilty. She doesn't like me. Never has. But I go in and I see my mum lying on the floor gasping for air in the midst of all this squalor and nobody gives a toss and I'm the one that's supposed to. And then Carolina steps through the door and the look she gives me when she sees the state mum's living in. A flood of shame. I see the mildewed curtains and peeling ceilings in a whole new light then. Paramedics are very quick. They say it were probably down to stress on top of her existing condition. Does she have anything in particular worrying her? Anything that might have stressed her out at all? It's a heart attack. He sent for Amanata, his wife. He says if he's going to be here that long, he can't stand to be without her, which means she has to come in via the same route. Amanata's boat left Libya yesterday morning. It's a 36-hour journey on average, depending on the engine and if the boat's only overloaded or fucking overloaded. But if the weather's rough, and the forecast is brutal, it can take days. The most terrifying thing for the families of migrants, and I'd never even thought about this, is that when they undertake the crossing itself, they're completely out of contact. The rest of the way, they've got phones they can keep in touch. But when they enter the blue desert, they disappear. Sitting there, staring at your phone, wondering if the person you love is ever going to ring it again. Days of him staring at his phone, wondering if she's ever going to ring it again. I volunteered to take the boat out tonight to try and find her. The look on Madibo's face when I tell him. He gives me a photo of her. Tells me to take care, come back safe. Both of us. They turf mum out of hospital a few days later. The nurses, who are lovely, want to keep her in for another week, but the consultant, who's a shiny-haired cunt, mutters... Bed blockers and saunters off. I shout after him. A bed blocker's not the same as sick people. But he doesn't stop. Urgent golf course to attend to. So out she goes. Pitiful state. Can barely hobble to the bus stop. Naturally, she doesn't want my help. Snaps at me if I try to hold her arm. I watch her stagger and wheeze through the puddles in the car park, almost on hands and knees, and I think... Come on then, Atos, have a look at this and call her fit for work. I don't even coach her for the interview. Piece of piss. 
You just go in there, Mum, and be your natural, warm and vibrant self and we will be just fine. Watch her dress in the same old shabby shit she's been wearing for donkey's years. Take a full 92 seconds to hobble from waiting room to office. Drool slightly onto her forms. And I'm thinking, we've got no problem here. And when the bastard shifts slightly in his seat and starts throwing the odd question my way, not many. No alarm bells go off. I know how to handle them. It's me. That's their excuse. I provide her with sufficient support structure to facilitate a return to paid employment. Without me, she'd get the 15 points you need for employment support allowance, but given my obvious capacity to compensate for the applicant's own shortcomings... This woman I've spent my whole life trying to get away from... They're tethering me to her till the day she dies. I go mad. Three days solid on the phone, arguing she meets exceptional circumstances under Regulation 25. She's a limited capacity for work-related activity, Regulation 31. They hate that. They blank me and block me and fob me off. Tens of thousands of pounds in man-hours to deny us this pitifully embarrassingly small sum of money and I keep pushing and pushing and I hear the vitriol in their voices but I win I fight and scratch and play them at their own game till in the end they refer the case to an appeals tribunal the setup there is still rigged but they've got to be a bit more public about it which gives you a chance I prepare meticulously go through all the documentation. I get mum ready, no stone unturned this time, go over my speech time after time. The tribunal is this Thursday. It's still at first, but right from the off you can tell it's coming. Salvo muttering, staring up at the sky. In the dark, we can't see the black clouds building up but we can feel them. Sticky. Static. Then the wind picks up, and the waves start to lift the boat and dump it back down again. You can tell how much trouble you're in at sea by how hard the boat thumps down between swells, and we're hitting the water harder and harder. Water is rock hard when you hit it like that. Your fillings jar in your mouth. Rain thrashes on the windscreen. Something shatters on the console. The pauses at the top of the swells get longer and longer. Huge waves loom out of the dark like sea monsters. And then the sickening lurch back down into the trough and the thump vibrating through your guts and bones. Sal is screaming at me, screaming at the top of his lungs, and I can still barely hear him that this is insane, and he's turning us back, when, suddenly, not far away, in between giant swells, I spot a light, low in the water, pitching and yawing, obviously in big trouble, a migrant boat. I scream at Sal to head towards it, and he doesn't want to. You can see he's afraid for us, but what kind of a coast guard, what kind of a man leaves a boat to go down? We swing around, which means we're perpendicular to the waves. They're crashing across us, drenching us, and that is when you can go under. 
I'm raging at Sal, veins popping, throat raw to get us back in line, get us back in line, when there's a flash of lightning. And out the corner of my eye this leviathan looms, a monstrous wave, as tall as a tower block, so tall it has little waterfalls tumbling from its crest. I freeze. Sal freezes. And Leviathan pounces. A roar, and it slams us under its paw. The whole boat goes under. The monster presses us down, down, down into the depths. And I breathe salt water. I don't know whether to cling to the boat or to let it sink and take my chances. And I realise it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I do. And then, for some reason, for no reason, the boat squirms free and we pop out onto the surface, gasping and choking, the roar of the storm louder than ever. I look at Sal and he's as pale as death, as pale as one of the drowned. We're heading into the teeth of the storm. Every time we climb one of the waves, I don't think we're going to reach the top, but we do. And we're getting there. We're getting closer and closer to the light. Maybe a couple of hundred metres at most. And then, all of a sudden, it goes out. The light vanishes. Sal hunches over the wheel. His knuckles whiten even more. He kicks out at the boat, screaming at it to pick the fuck up. Pick the fuck up, you fuck, you fuck, you fucker. But all that picks up is the wind. The storm holds us at arm's length, watching us squirm and strive, laughing at us, refusing to let us get any closer. For half an hour, we make no headway. And then, all of a sudden, the wind drops and the noises start. A loud thump against the hull. A pause. And then another thump, and then another, and another. Most of the equipment is broken or gone, but one of the terawatt lights is still intact and I don't want to turn it on. Please don't make me turn it on. But I turn it on. And in the conical glare of light, we see them coming. The storm mockingly pushing them towards us. The black silhouettes of corpses. Dozens and dozens of corpses are floating in the water around us. Thumps against the hull come in in twos and threes. I grab the first body I can, wrench it halfway aboard, turn it over and... It's got Modibo's face. I don't mean the body looks like Modibo. He is Modibo. He has my friend's face but dead and gone. I scream in pure terror, drop the body back in the ocean, Sal staring at me like I've lost my mind. I lean back against the side and howl like a child. Sal shakes me, slaps me across the face. You fucking brought us out here. You do your fucking job. Get them in. I pull myself up, lean over the side, drag another one in, flip him over and... He's got Madibo's face. Every one of the 57 bodies I recovered that night had Modibo's face. And I keep pulling them in.
if I can't bring her back alive, at least I can bring her back. Mum died the night before the tribunal. Massive coronary. Instantaneous. There'll be an inquest, but the paramedic, same fellow as the time before, very kind, he said it's almost impossible to tell if the worry killed her or it would have happened anyway with her condition. But I know. There were three people at the funeral. The priest. The fellow who presses the button to send the stiff down into the fiery furnace, who was chewing gum and staring out the window the entire time. Commitment to excellence. And me. And then it were five. Carolina and Jaden turned up. Poor little bugger. Top day out for him. I couldn't cry at first. You feel obliged to cry, but I couldn't. Till she turned up. Tears from kindness just leaked out. Why are people kind? It's the most unlikely thing. I think I'll take her ashes up the moors on a windy day. Mum hated walking. Absolutely loathed it. Exactly where she wouldn't want to be. Scatter them far and wide. As far away as possible. Bye, Mum. Been telling myself that for a while now. Still got them there. For some reason. I've wanted to be unyoked from you for so long. And now it's happened, I... I go back to work straight after the funeral. Uni won't let me graduate if I don't pay the fees. Cuts are biting, loans are rising, plenty of work. They say it's a recovery. It's not a fucking recovering beast, and let me tell you that. But suddenly, all their flats look like mums. The same streaks of filth on the walls. The same worn-through carpet with the underlay showing. The same sense of hopelessness and helplessness. And then the other day, somewhat proper mad happens. I'm collecting off this old lady and she's in floods, which is obviously hard, but after a while you get a bit hardened to it. You think maybe they're turning on the waterworks for your benefit, though this one seemed genuine enough. Eventually she stops crying and turns to reach into her handbag. And when she turns back, she has mum's face. A dead grey stare full of reproach. Fucking hell. I gave the old dear another week and sprint out the door, down the stairs, can't wait for the lift. Flight after flight of stairs, she lives on 14th floor and behind me her tearful voice echoing down the stairwell, calling out in gratitude. I quit my job that afternoon. Packed it in. I just fucking couldn't anymore, you know? We found her. It took all night... But we found her. There were only three people pulled alive out of the sea that night and Amanata was one of them. We travelled back in the breaking dawn. Grey, turning orange, turning blue. Five live bodies and 57 dead ones. Nobody says a word, each ocean deep in their own thoughts. Sal kicks me, nods at Amanata and says, Is it her?
Is that why we came? And I nod. I have a son, is all he says to me. A son. No more words till we reach land. We pull up to the pier. It's packed. A wall of people. I'm scanning for Medibo's face when there's this splash. Amanata's over the side and into the shallows. And there's a kind of keening noise from the pier. And a second splash. And it's him. He's in the water too. These two torpedoes rocketing together to meet in an explosion of sheer joy and relief. Ecstasy at the deepest pain averted. Limbs entangled, rolling over and over, yelling and laughing, and water splashing everywhere. This fantastical new sea creature. Tears and hands over mouths and hugging on the pier. Even Salvo's got tears in his eyes, the old cynic. Though he's trying to hide them. I tell him thanks, but he turns away. He hears me, though. I have never seen two happier people in all my born days. Me. I've still got 57 bodies to unload. I can't go out for a couple of days. Even though it's finals lectures and I am so far behind. A knock on my locked door. Carolina? You're not answering your phone. Yeah, no. I'm fine. I think she's gone away. A lurch in my chest and then she says, Listen, you might think it's crazy, but... Will you move in with us? What? What are you talking about? The couch falls out. If we split the rent, I can start to pay my loan. Is this a joke? I trust you, she says. I don't trust easily, but I trust you. I don't know why. What do you think about it, please? Fucking hell. Fucking, fucking hell. Why are people kind? I just received this, delivered this morning. Exam results. The last question on my last exam was on the monkey trap. You know the one. Where the monkey can get its hand into the coconut shell to pull out treats, but it can't pull out its fist with treats still in them, so the villagers can catch it. The question was... What does this experiment suggest about the perils of untrammeled materialism? You could see the answer they wanted, this home of original thinking. But the monkey traps always meant something different to me. Because I never had the balls to put my hand in in first place. Never could admit there was anything I wanted because I knew I couldn't have it and I'd only get hurt. So I took a different tack. I wrote, 
that empirical studies of the monkey trap experiment do not support the presumed hypothesis of inherent greed. To wit, in the vast majority of test cases, the monkeys let go of the treats. They demonstrate a clear understanding of the relative importance of grated coconut vis-à-vis their own bollocks. That's not me answer word for word, obviously. I wrote that the monkey trap experiment is fundamentally an indicator of hope. It speaks to our ability to walk away from delusions, from traps, to save ourselves from our baser instincts. My last line, and I can't believe I actually wrote this hippie shit, but fuck it, was, perhaps the ultimate purpose of the experiment is for the monkeys to teach us something. They had their second wedding today. Their European wedding, they called it. Celebrate her coming back from the dead. Chiara loaned her a dress. Looked really good on her, actually. Nothing fancy, just a party in the camp, Marley and food and music, dancing and laughing and hugging and more dancing. <laughs> I'm completely shattered. Dragged Sal along after much protest, he's still dancing. He didn't think much to the food, though. I was the guest of honour. Imagine that. The bloody guest of honour. They've given us joy and hope. They've brought us the things we have nothing of, and I thank them for that. They don't know what'll happen if either of them will get to stay here long term, but they're here, alive and living, and that is all you can ask for. I defy you to see the joy in Modibo and Aminata's faces and to not feel hope. I defy you. Lampedusa was written by Anders Lustgarten and performed by Louise Mynewbury and Ferdy Roberts. It was directed by Stephen Atkinson, based on the stage production produced by Soho Theatre and High Tide Festival Theatre in association with Unity Theatre Liverpool. Lampedusa was produced by Matt Hill and mixed by Pascal Wise. Jason Phipps is our head of audio. Thank you for listening to this special edition of the Guardian Books podcast. The song Lampedusa is performed by Turani and Siddiqui Diabate. It's available on World Circuit Records. To hear more readings and dramas or subscribe to one of the Guardian's many regular series, go to theguardian.com slash audio. Thank you for listening and goodbye. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.